So let's uh, have a word of prayer before we look at the word together, shall we? Ask God's blessing. Father, as we come before your word, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts to it, that you would um, make our minds able to grasp the wonderful truths that are here. The day you came to a man and spoke to him. And Father, we just appreciate that you're a God who communicates to your creation, not just to your creation, Lord, but to rebels and sinners and the lost in order to save them. We thank you for that. We pray that um, you'd make Luke come alive for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we've been looking at the uh, introductory thoughts of Luke on how he composed his gospel, and we talked about that last time. And, And this morning we come to the beginning of Luke's narrative in which Luke lays out for us, as he promised in the introduction, to write everything for us from the beginning, how it all actually happened, the story of Christ. He begins with the divine promise that was given to two families with regard to two births, uh, world-changing births. And as we uh, look at the annunciation of the first remarkable birth this morning, our, our themes will be focused on things like expectation and unbelief and what I like to call, um, it's actually a biblical idea, is the idea of breakthrough. There's times when God just sort of breaks through, you know, it's like you're going through this routine sort of world and all of a sudden things happen and you just go, wow, um, somebody set that up. You ever have one of those experiences? I hope you have, but um, I, I have a number of times. I mean, not many, not as big a way as this, but um, there's just times it's just unmistakable that God is doing something and you just can't get away from it. And so it's, a, it's kind of a breakthrough into your life. But God's open involvement is the idea. And, and at times in Scripture and in life, God breaks through in such a way that it can only be Him. Uh, God just has to be ordering the situation. And, and when we seek to understand the remarkable events of this chapter, we need to get a feel for the, the time uh, behind it. And as we explore verses 5 through 25 this morning, we're going to look at um, the historical setting. And then we're going to look at this family that's involved. And then we're going to talk about this idea of breakthrough and how God did something remarkable. First, the time. Verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, in modern times, looking back, you know, through the course of the centuries, we could say in the last days between the Testaments. You could look at it that way. When Herod was old. And the event that Luke is going to describe ends, brings to a close 400 years of prophetic silence. After Malachi's prophecy in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, God did not speak. And there were no books added to the Old Testament. No prophet said, Thus saith the Lord, and spoke forth revealed knowledge from God. It didn't happen anymore. No one knew exactly why, but God ceased communicating directly with His people for four centuries. And the Jews recognized that it had happened. They knew that suddenly they were living in a time without prophets. Prophets ceased ceased to be a feature of their lives. No books were added to the scripture. A lot of books were written, uh, histories and um, human wisdom and some tall tales, but they were not the prophetic word. And some of those books ended up, if you ever look in a Roman Catholic Bible, and between the Old and the New Testament, they have what's called the Apocrypha. Some of those books ended up in there, but those were not divinely inspired books. They're just the books of men. They even claim to be the books of men. They don't claim to be divinely inspired. But um, the Jews recognized that change that had happened in their world and they had to make adjustments to it so they became passionate about the books they had. 
eager to preserve them and accurately transmit them. And they develop this whole super complex system to accurately transmit to the letter every single book of the Old Testament down to each generation because they knew they had something special and things had gone silent. So no more books were created with prophetic authority for 400 years. That's a pretty long time. I mean, think about 400 years. Anybody remember 400 years ago? No. Um, huh? Well, yeah. Uh, 461 years ago, Martin Luther died. So that's a long time ago. 419 years ago, the Spanish Armada got destroyed off the coast of England by the Seahawks and big storms and stuff like that. 399 years ago, Samuel de Champlain up north founded this little, little tiny little hovel called Quebec. Exactly 400 years ago in May, not from today, but in May, in 1607, guess who showed up? Jamestown, right? The Jamestown colony was founded. Captain Smith, you know, and Pocahontas and all that. That was 400 years ago. 400 years ago, King James I was sitting on the throne of England, and they just started getting this big group of guys together to translate the Bible into English. So the King James Bible had not quite come out yet. 400 years ago. That's a long time. So what was going on in the promised land during the 400 years from the days of the prophets until the time of Christ? It's a story that's pretty complex, too complex to relate easily here, but Israel became a battleground basically between Syria and Egypt and the descendants of the uh, um, generals of Alexander the Great. He was actually part of that intermediate period, Alexander the Great sweeping through that part of the world. And when he died, his... Conquests were split into four, and the Ptolemies ruled in Egypt, and the Seleucids ruled in Syria, and they just kept whomping on each other. In fact, Daniel chapter 11 is sort of a history of that before it leads up to this end-time prophecy stuff there in Daniel 11. But um, Daniel foretells it all in incredible detail, actually. But uh, So the history of the 400 silent years, it kind of reads like a, a novel of intrigue and war and assassinations and slaughters and deceit and treaties and secret intrigues and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but it was this situation where you, it, it's hard to count how many times Jerusalem was under siege by the various armies going back and forth because Israel sat right in between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So they would sometimes one side be in the ascendancy, sometimes the other side. But since our text says in the days of King Herod, Herod king of Judea, let me give you just a brief rundown on him. Herod's father had made himself very useful to a guy named Julius Caesar. Everybody ever heard of him? And he was given the governorship of Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. And he was murdered. And Herod's eldest brother was driven to suicide by Rome's worst enemy in the east, the Parthians, the Iranians back then. Still goes on, doesn't it? Uh, The Parthians were Rome's uh, worst enemies in the east. And Herod fled to Rome, and he became a friend of Octavius Caesar, who was a a relative of Julius. And Mark Anthony, who appointed him the king of Judea in 40 B.C. For a little while, Mark Anthony and Octavius were ruling together. There was a triad of men. The other guy wasn't very important. They were sort of the two big boys. And with Roman troops, Herod took power in Jerusalem in 37 B.C., and he had to pay a fortune to keep the Roman troops from destroying the temple and plundering Jerusalem. <laughs> so he paid him a whole lot of money to keep them from, that's a golden building, let's tear it apart. Um, 
so he had to pay them off to not do that. And he ended up marrying a, a gal named Miriamne, who was a relative of the previous Judean rulers to give him uh, a claim to the throne that had a little more weight. And her family did not like losing control, and uh, they didn't like him, but it was a political marriage. In the early years, he had a lot of opposition. And he basically consolidated his power by um, sometimes by negotiation and diplomacy and sometimes by just killing a lot of people. And uh, that was kind of the what person he was. The Pharisees didn't like him because he was not Jewish. He was an Idumean, um, one of the other tribes in the area, a product of a mixed marriage. And he was a friend of Rome, of course, so they hated him for that. The wealthy class didn't like him because um, they had ties to the earlier ruling family. And Herod's solution was to take the 45 most prominent families, the richest and most well-known families in the country, and just kill them and take all their lands and property. That's what he did. And then there was the Hasmonean family. That, those were the previous rulers. They were in opposition to him. Mariamne, his wife, was one of them. And um, this is how spiritual matters were sort of handled here. Herod's mother-in-law, Mariamne's mom, wanted to, her son to be the high priest. And already there was a high priest who was in that position for life. And she got her friend, who was this gal down in Egypt way named Cleopatra. It's true. She got her to get Mark Anthony to pressure Herod to change high priest. And it worked. He illegally deposed the high priest and put a 17-year-old kid, uh, Aristobulus, in that position. And the people actually liked Aristobulus because he was kind of a fun guy. And he became very popular. So Herod had him accidentally drowned at a party, uh, at a pool party. And somebody just kind of held him under the water and he never came back. And because uh, he was too popular, you know. See, see, some kings, they get this sort of thing in their head. Well, Cleo, uh, Cleopatra had Anthony call Herod to account. So Herod had to come to them and explain, what, well, exactly how did Aristobulus die at your pool party? I want to hear that whole story. Uh, so Herod went to Anthony, and he left instructions that if should they condemn him and kill him, his wife was to be killed. Uh, well, you know, if, if he would be condemned, his wife would be killed uh, by his agent. And Herod's brother-in-law, Joseph, was put in charge of Herod's wife. When Herod got back, um, his sister said, this is all very complicated, right? Uh, we're talking about like a soap opera stuff. Herod's sister said Joseph was sleeping with Miriamne, who was Herod's wife. And Herod uh, had Joseph executed without a trial and decided to put his mother-in-law in prison, which is what he did. And then he had some new problems from Cleo because she had Anthony just give her a big sections of his kingdom. Herod's kingdom was just passed over to Anthony. So, you know, you're Herod and you're great and all this stuff, but, you know, when Elizabeth Taylor's batting her eyes, and <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd really like to have parts of that kingdom. Yes, you just give them over. And uh, so he did. It wasn't Elizabeth Taylor. That was the movie. It was uh, Cleopatra. It was, uh... Anyway, then came the Roman Civil War, right? So it's Anthony and Cleo against Octavius. So they had a split in the, the triumphant that was ruling. So Herod, Herod buddied up with his old friend Octavius. And after uh, Anthony and Cleo committed suicide, Herod got a greatly enlarged share of his world. And eventually he executed his wife and his mother-in-law and a lot of other people. But... He was a very bloody-minded person. But from about 25 to 14 B.C., 25 B.C. to 14 B.C., he went on this great building program. I mean, incredible. So the temple got started, the temple that was the temple of Jesus' day, which was still unfinished in Jesus' day. Remember they said, we've been working on this temple for 46 years, and you're going to tear it down in three days? 
very prosperous time. Uh, the Greek and Roman way was promoted amongst the Israelites and in Palestine. So there were theaters and amphitheaters and gods and games and gladiators and chariot races and all of that kind of stuff that had never been a part of that culture before. And there was uh, still family trouble. Uh, Herod, now he had ten other wives, so it wasn't like he was lacking for companionship or anything. But he had a fallout with various sons of his ten wives and he was always suspecting plots and attempts on his throne. So eventually he killed his two favorite sons. And because they had friends, he killed all their friends, about 300 other young men. And that was in 7 B.C. And Herod was around 70 years old, 70 years old in 7 B.C. Now another son, the new heir, was condemned to prison in 5 B.C. And 5 B.C. is probably the year that some men showed up from the east and said, we've seen a star and we've been doing all these calculations and there's a new king to be born. And they searched the scriptures and found that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sent his troops and what? Slaughtered all the people under two years old in Bethlehem. Now people look back at that time and they say, you know, would a guy really do something like that? That was very small potatoes for him. That was like, he'd, he'd killed so many people to kill 30 kids or so in a little tiny village and it was nothing for him to order something like that. It was totally his personality and his way. So it's a time of great brutality. This old man has no rules but his own paranoid whims. And um, Luke's historical investigation and modern historical research tell us that somewhere in the year 6 B.C. or so, a godly priest named Zacharias was chosen by lot to perform the rare and sacred duty of offering incense on the altar in the holy place. I say rare. It happened daily, but you didn't get to do it if you... One particular man did not get to do it, except maybe once in his life. So let's look at the story. Um, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. We'll come back to that in a minute about that whole process. The whole multitude of people were in prayer outside of the hour of the incense offering, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. The angel said, what angels always say, Don't be afraid. (laughs) Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit yet while in his mother's womb. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, which is the last lines of the Old Testament right there. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this for sure? Because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them because they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. It came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. We'll just stop right there for right now. So we're introduced immediately to this chosen family, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And 400 years of silence, we're just sort of waiting for the day when God would speak again to his people, the people that God had chosen. And here they are. So verse 5, Zecharias of the division of Abijah, a priest, and his wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So he's a priest in the division of Abijah, which points to the one of the divisions of the priests in David's time. If you read First Chronicles 24, they've got this all organized, this whole temple thing, and uh, the way it was going to work. There were 24 orders, and those of Abijah were the eighth in the list of 24. And they would take turns performing the temple service, each order taking it for a week in rotation. That's how it was set up. So whenever the priests lived, or wherever they lived, for about two weeks a year, they would move to Jerusalem and serve there in the temple. And then they would go home to their local uh, places. Sort of a priestly reserve corps, you know, and they would come in and do their two weeks, right? So Elizabeth, she's from the daughters of Aaron, which would be a pretty exalted lineage, you know, to be able to trace yourself right back to Aaron. And that was considered a great honor. And uh, so we learned two things about them. They were believing godly people. That's the first thing he says. Notice verse 6. In whose sight were they righteous? God's sight. So God viewed them as righteous people. They were observant of the law and all of its requirements. So John the Baptist, who is the child to be born from Elizabeth, was the son of godly parents. True believers in the highest Old Testament sense of that word. And isn't it interesting that John's father would perform the sacrifices which pointed to and were emblematic of the Messiah that John was going to announce to the world. The second thing we learn about them is that they were an older couple and they were childless. Now, this was a cause of grief to Elizabeth, for in that culture, barrenness was considered sort of a curse or just a sign of misfortune and uh, something wrong with you, you know, and children were highly valued and as a blessing of God, and that blessing was denied her, so maybe God was punishing her, Um, some people may have said or believed or suggested. So a woman who couldn't give uh, children to her husband was in some ways to be pitied and and looked down on. But God had these incredible things in store for them, just phenomenal. So they spent many years of their life going through their life. Heartbreak is part of it with not having any children, but, you know, godly people, consistently godly people, and just kind of going along. And then at the end, after years and years and years, when probably they were looking toward the end of their lives, a wonderful, incredible thing happens. Verse 8, it says, While he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot. Hey, Zacharias, it's your turn. Oh, okay. That's really a great thing. That's a wonderful privilege to go in there. God's got it all set up. For all these years he'd been serving as a priest, they'd been throwing lots. and His name never came up. And now it came up. Just kind of interesting. Now, these orders of priests, um, 
were numerous. Even within each of the 24 orders, there would be hundreds of priests. So lots were cast four times a day. And that way, each area of service was covered. So they had four lots. The winner of lot number one would clean the altar and prepare the fire. And the winner of lot number two would um, offer sacrifice and clean the, the lampstand that was in the holy place and the altar of incense. And the guy that got lot number three would actually offer the incense. That's what Zechariah's job is going to be. And lot number four fell to the guy that would offer um, the meat on the altar outside the holy place before you go into that holy place. He'd be doing that after the incense was offered. The, the people that offered the incense and took care of the holy place would come back out and then they would do the meat thing on the brazen altar outside. So the offering the incense was considered the most important job in the daily sacrifices. It was the job that had the highest honor. And once you did that service, your name was taken out of the lot. So you'd never get to do it again because everybody wanted a shot at it. And uh, there were so many priests that even doing it every day, you just never went through the whole group. So they tried to give everybody an opportunity or let the Lord choose for everybody to have an opportunity through lot. But once you did it, your lot was pulled out so you wouldn't do it again. So it was very special. Now you could do some of these other functions, but you couldn't do that again. That was very unique. So if you'd done it before, you were not in the lot to be chosen again. So, now this is what's supposed to happen. I'm just going to kind of describe it for you, okay? The chosen one to offer the incense, which is Zechariah's today, picks two assistants. And they first approach the altar of burnt offering. They're outside the holy place. And one fills the censer thing with incense, and the other one gets burning coals from the altar. And they go from the court there, the outer court, to where the holy place is. Now, in the tabernacle, this is a pretty simple deal. In the temple, it's a much more grand place with stairs and all kinds of fancy stuff there. So they go from the court to the holy place, and they're striking a gong while they pass by, and that summons all the priests to come out to their stations for this daily event. The incensing uh, priest, the one that's going to offer the incense, and the assistants, then they go up the steps to where the holy place is. And the assistants set up the coals and the incense on the golden altar, um, uh, and then they withdraw. So they go in there and take care of that, and, and then they pull out. The priest remaining waits until the signal is given from the head of the temple worship, and then he burns the incense on the altar. So the three of them go in. The two assistants take care of some of the other business, and then they pull out and they leave the one that's the priest that's going to offer the incense. And then when he hears the signal from outside, he puts the incense on the... the uh, the incense altar there, and then the smoke starts to go up. Okay, so that's, that's what happens. So he's in there waiting for that signal. When he gets the signal, he does it. The incense rises, and it's a picture of prayer. And at that moment, um, all of the priests outside are praying. And then after the prayer, the priest departs, and he joins his assistants outside, standing at the top of the stairs, and all the other priests gather um, on the stairs below them. And the priest that offered the... Um, the priest of the sacrificial altar, the guy that's lot number four, he starts placing the meat on the altar. And once the meat is all arranged and the uh, thing is ascending up into heaven, the smoke and all of that, they all join hands in a very special way. And then the priest that offered the incense, who would be Zechariah today, is supposed to quote Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26, which is the famous um, blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When I was raised as a little Lutheran at the end of every service, the, the minister would say that. That's a wonderful blessing right out of the scripture. That will be Zechariah's job at once he's outside. 
the more sacrifices are, are offered after that, and then the music starts playing and the worship concludes, and that's sort of the normal thing. So the officiating priest, who is Zechariah's today, has this rather different experience than your average priest. And uh, so I'm actually going to do something wild. I'm going to use a visual aid. Oh, it's so cool. I'm going to use a visual aid. You know, I just don't ever use visual aids, but... Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is not a robot. I told one of the kids it was a robot this morning. It's not. It's a... That's actually the holy place. So, you know, the holy of holies is, is up here, and then you got the lampstand, and the altar of incense is right there, and the table of showbread is right there, and there's this curtain, right? So they only go here where the, uh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is with the angels and all that. You only go in there once a year. This is the daily part. The daily part is done here. So if you want to know what the furniture pieces look like, they're, um, you know, the candlesticks like that, the table of showbread looks like that. And the altar of incense, which is where Zechariah is going to stand, is, is right there. So he's standing there, he comes in and he's standing there and he's waiting for the signal to um, offer the incense and then all the prayer is going to happen. And what happens? Put yourself in his shoes, okay? This is the one time in your life that you can perform this sacred service. The lot has not fallen to you all these years. Now's your chance. Imagine you can you, you carefully perform your task. You're waiting for the signal. The moment sounds. The prayer begins. You put the incense on the altar. The smoke starts to rise. And then something catches out of the corner of your eye. And there's like an angel standing there. We'll give him a halo so we know who he is. So, just, and it says, Luke even says, he says, to the right of the altar. He was just standing there, an angel. It's like, so he's in there all by himself and he kind of picks out of the corner of his eye. Oh! Right? So an angel is standing there right by the altar, and it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. <laughs> so he's so shaken, of course, the angel says what angels say. Don't be afraid. So, but, I mean, it was right there. So he's supposed, to, he's supposed to come back out, but he's not coming out. I mean, you kind of do your job and get out of there. And, and so there's this conversation going on in there that nobody else can hear, and outside they're all sort of... Uh, is he going to come back out or not? And uh, they're kind of wondering what's going on. Well, inside, there's this conversation. So verse 13 is very interesting. The angel says, um, don't be afraid. Your petition has been heard. Your petition has been heard. Now, there's a couple ways of people have understood this. What petition or prayer is the angel referring to? Some people think it's a prayer for a son, but it could be, and it may well be, and I actually think it is, it's the prayer that's being offered by the priest in the service itself. And we actually have, there exists a written prayer that's associated with that very point of the temple service. And I'm going to read it for you and just kind of listen to it, and then we'll talk about the angelic message a little bit. The prayer that the priest would be saying while he's offering up the incense is this. We praise thee who art Jehovah, our God, and the God of our fathers, the God of all flesh, our creator, the creator from the beginning. Blessing and praise be to thy great and holy name that thou hast preserved us in life and kept us. So preserve us and keep us and gather the scattered ones into thy holy courts to keep thy statutes and do thy good pleasure and to serve thee with our whole heart as this day we confess unto thee, blessed be the Lord." It's a prayer 
for spiritual renewal and restoration, isn't it? Now, look at Gabriel's pronouncement there. Your petition has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and will give, you will give him the name John. Now, that sounds like the prayer might have been for a child, and maybe it was. But look what he says after that. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at this birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet while in his mother's womb, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a, a people prepared, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, that's exactly a response to the prayer in the temple service. So what, what his son is going to accomplish. So Zechariah's son will gather the scattered and teach them faithful obedience to serve God with a whole heart. So a prophet is going to be born after 400 years of silence. And he will prepare the way for one that is greater even than him. Now, in verse 14 through 17, there's a whole lot of information in there, so we're going to look at that next week, okay? Because I don't want to break the flow of the story here. But Zechariah's response to the story is very revealing. He doesn't believe it. Verse 18. How shall I know this for certain? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You know, I appreciate the fact that you're an angel and everything, but these kind of things just don't really happen. I'm old. My wife's old. Period's over. She's already through the hot flash stage. Everything, everything. We're not having any more kids. Now, did Zechariah have any historical basis in which to believe this angel? I mean, was there anything like in the history of his own people? Well, sure. I mean, come on, Abraham and Sarah, you know, I mean, 100 years old. How could he be like this? How could he doubt a heavenly visitor? Because, you know, it says he was a righteous man and a godly man and kept the ways of the Lord and all of that. Well, you know, he's righteous, he's dutiful, he's observant. He believes, but... He's complacent. He doesn't have vision. He's not ready for God to do anything. He doesn't expect God to do anything. So things are the way they are. Very happy. I have a very good life. I, I love the Lord. I serve Him. But nothing's really going to happen. Things aren't really going to change. So Zechariah is wrongly content. Contentment is a good thing, but not in this way. He's content with his spiritual life to go on just like it has. Just keep me on an even keel, Lord. Uh, don't rock my boat. Don't ask for faith. <laughs> I'll believe. Don't, uh, don't ask for me to really follow your lead. I mean, that's kind of where he's at. And don't ask me to really trust you because, you know, things like that just don't happen. So he's seen something wonderful, but he doesn't have any vision personally, you know. He, he only knows what he knows. And there's an application here uh, for us, you know. Be expectant about the Lord and you never know what his timing is or when he's ready to move or any of those kind of things. You know, all of us in leadership here at Acton Faith Bible Church feel like right now God is moving in our midst and in his own timing, by his sovereign grace, he's challenging us and renewing us and cleansing us and purging us and changing us and just don't get too settled in the routine thing because God isn't he isn't always going to be the same. He, he does things according to his own schedule. So don't think, God isn't going to do anything. 
Behold, wondrous things shall happen to you. And they still do. Are you ready? Are you ready for God to do something? We believe that God is setting our best years ahead of us here. And I don't have any doubt about that personally. I don't have any doubt about that. As it happened for Zechariah, I believe our future is bright, brighter than it's ever been since I've been here. And I don't mean angelic appearances. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for those, but I haven't seen any. But I'm, I mean further effectiveness on the Lord's behalf. God is doing great things. The question is, what sort of people are we going to be when he's ready to move and he's doing things? God is working in our midst. He's, it's very clear, so let's be ready. Don't be complacent. You know, God doesn't, yeah, it sounds like a wonderful idea, but well, I don't know. Those things don't really get better. He reveals opportunities, and as he does that, we should be ready to walk in them and be expectant and not stuck in a rut. So how can we be ready? Well, I can think of all kinds of ways to be ready, but three things just kind of jump to mind in terms of being ready. God wants us to grow in love. Always. The New Testament just abounds in that. Even when Paul compliments churches for their great love, he says, but you know, you can love even more. (laughs) He always says that. So to love one another is just a critical part of that. And holiness, personal holiness, and being obedient to the Lord. And outreach. Those are the things that just jump to mind. If we're doing those things, then we're ready. Love, holiness, outreach. Now holiness just means dealing with your own sinfulness. Confessing it, repenting, being honest with yourself before the Lord. It means humility. And if you have a whole congregation of people that are humbly repenting, you're, ready, you're getting ready. Add to that love. Love means a, a tender regard for people, for people that aren't as perfect as you are. That's what it means. Love means serving and encouraging and wanting, really wanting from the heart what's best for other people. The Lord has been teaching me a lot about love, what love is and what love isn't. And Boom, boom, finally getting clued in a little bit. We're going to be measured by our love in the judgment. We're going to be measured by how we treat one another, how we are in the body. Not what we say, but what we do and where our heart is. So to grow in love is just a major emphasis of the New Testament. And this church has always had much love. But as Paul would say, abound still more in love. can always excel. And then outreach, just getting the gospel out, sharing Christ here in town and in the larger world. God is making opportunities for us. He has been for a while. And the doors just keep opening. And we need to be ready to find ways to make it happen and to go or send or pray or give or whatever. But I see God moving in our midst in very dramatic ways, bringing us energy and opportunity and resources to bring Christ to other people. And we need to be ready and expectant for him to do wonderful things. Wonderful things shall happen through you. They're already happening, but more can come, more can happen. Our best years, I'd say, are ahead of us. So the attitude should be, well, I'm going to do my part, and I want to be part of that. So if an angel appears and has some kind of a plan, actually, I don't want to hear about angels, but if, if, when God opens these opportunities and stuff, let's go with it, you know? Go with it. Let God stretch you. Say, stretch me. Be eager to be stretched. 
Don't be a Zechariah. What an attitude he's got. Well, how do I know that's really going to happen? I mean, an angel's telling him this. <laughs> and I love the angel's response. You know, he says, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> that's a good response. <laughs> I'm an old man. I'm Gabriel. <laughs> What a, what a pathetic contrast, you know, between him and this angel. The very presence of a prince of angels and uh, sent from God to bring him good news. And he goes, I'm an old man. I can't, it's not going to happen. How's that going to happen? So what human excuses can you really offer when God is ready to break through and do something? You know, what are we going to say? Well, I don't know. That doesn't, I don't know if we can do that. Uh, expect... God to move through us. Expect change and spirit-inspired change and progress. Verse 19 through 20, Zechariah um, gets a supernatural rebuke. The angel answered and said, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Now remember, remember the whole picture there. He's inside, he's they're having this conversation. Everybody's outside waiting. He's not coming out. They're starting to probably think about, should we send somebody in there to check on him? The priests were to do their work very quickly and get back out. So the delay was very unusual. I have a heart attack? What's happening in there? And then all of a sudden he comes out and he doesn't look normal. Maybe staggering a little bit. His eyes are kind of wide. His face is flushed. And he's supposed to give this blessing. And he can't say anything. So he starts making signs to them. So I don't know how he did it, but he's trying to communicate that there was some, something really dramatic happened. And verse 22, it says, He came out, he was unable to speak to them, they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So they knew he had seen something. And sure enough, Gabriel's words come true. Verse 23 through 25 there, it just says exactly what he had said happens. Verse uh, 24, after these days of Elizabeth, his wife became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. You imagine all the people harassing her for um, or wanting to, uh, oh, Elizabeth, what do you do? And all this. So she kind of puts herself in seclusion because she's past childbearing and so it's a big deal. I mean, she's famous, you know, where they live. So she, she kind of hides herself away a little bit. And she says, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So she's really, really happy. So she secludes herself. She's not going on Oprah or CNN or anything like that. And Good Morning America calls, but they don't return the calls. And, and her husband, the whole time, he's just quiet. <laughs> Probably pretty happy now. Settling into the fact he's got a child coming. People come to visit so he just writes a sign that says, go away, and puts it on the front of the house. But she's quietly giving thanks to the Lord. A blessing she was beyond hoping for was granted, granted to her. So by the time she shows herself again, it's going to be time when she's probably starting to show a little bit in her condition. It's true, it's true. You know, so as the people of Israel 
began, the people of Israel as a people began with a miracle like this, with Abraham and Sarah, uh, an old, old couple made fruitful again. And so the new work of God begins in a similar way with a unique birth. And that's more than going to be outdone with the story of a birth to follow, which is the Redeemer's birth. But next week we're going to back up briefly and look at Gabriel's message, and then we're going to go on to the announcement of that next birth. But the message is, be ready for God when he wants to do something through you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this great story, and we appreciate so much understanding Zechariah's way and his contentment. And it's not unlike us, Father, to be like that, to just get in a rut and be complacent and think that it's always going to be sort of like this and we're not going to be stepping out too far or stretching ourselves too much. We're just going to be where we've always been. But we know that that's not your way. And Father, we just pray that we would always keep up with you as you lead and make opportunities and mold us We pray that we would abound in love, that every hindrance to love would be taken out of our hearts, that we would put aside malice and evil thinking, Lord, and condemnation, and we would minister to people. And we pray for holiness, that we would examine our own hearts carefully and repent of our sins and be humble before you and in the the presence of other people, Father, because what right have we to exalt ourselves? And we pray for our church to be a church that reaches out to others with the good news and it is good news and we know that as you lead and we follow great things will come we thank you in Christ's name we pray Amen